long have you been, Seventeen? I am a vampire, and you are mortal. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to This Podcast Sucks. The show where we take a bite out of the vampire genre. We'll be following all manner of fanged fiends through the past 127 years of film and television. From Nosferatu to Twilight, I'm your host, Tara. And I'm your host, Elliot. So, Elliot, we're finally not watching a Dracula movie. I know, I was so excited. In my notes, the first thing at the top of the page was, (laughs) not Dracula! (laughs) (laughs) No, no, very much not Dracula. It is Carl Theodore Dreyer's... Dreyer's? Dreyer's... I'm maybe not saying that right, but... Dreyer's? Carl Theodore Dreyer's 1932 Vampire. So, Elliot, had you heard or seen this movie before? I think I had maybe seen that that cover image of... of um, oh, I can't remember what her... The, because there's Giselle and one mm-hmm. of the sisters kind of slumped over on the bench with the scythe, the shadow of the mm-hmm. scythe above her. I think I had seen mm-hmm. that image before or maybe heard the title, but I didn't really have any prior knowledge of this film. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so I had heard of it, I don't know, kind of, it had been in my brain, I guess, for a while now, but it's just one of those movies I'd never seen. I um, I, I knew it was kind of a um, well-regarded um, art house international film, and that the director himself was very famous, and I had always seen that image cover of the man with the scythe. And um, I also knew it had a Criterion release, so I was like, ooh, okay, maybe prestige there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, this was my first time seeing it. So, um, what what was your initial impression? Um, <laughs> yeah, my initial impression. Well, one thing that I found interesting was how quiet it was. Um, because mm-hmm. it almost felt like it almost felt like a silent film, and yes. I'm, I'm assuming that you're going to bring this up. But in terms of uh, the restoration of this film and kind of the history mm-hmm. of its preservation, so it's possible that it used to have more talking in it. But that was one thing that mm-hmm. struck me, and the other thing that kind of stood out to me just right at first was that kind of 1930s pacing. Um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah so it's they a was just slow. Diff- yeah they just had different you know like narrative flow was just different back then it was very very different also a very different style to um the past two films we watched which were the um hollywood produced dracula's I think watching this movie, you could definitely go, okay, we're back in Europe now. Um, <laughs> so, well, I'm glad you, um, I'm glad you brought up the um, point about it seeming like a silent film and how there's very little dialogue because that will bring us to some very interesting points about the film's kind of production history, which I'm happy to get into right now. Yes, please do. Okay, so... The film was directed by Carl Theodore Dreer, and it was the screenplay was written by Christian Jewell and Dreer, and it's based on In a Glass Darkly by Sheridan Le Fanu. And here are just some of the original titles of the movie while it was being screened in various countries. Um, 
Destiny, Shadows of Hell, Not Against the Flesh, Castle of Doom, and The Strange Adventure of David Gray. <laughs> <laughs> which is which is your personal favorite? Um Shadows of Hell, that sounds pretty hardcore, but Not Against the Flesh, that's that's different. That's I like that. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I was going to say is that Not Against the Flesh has a sort of kind of ambiguity or weirdness to it of like I really yeah. don't know what this film is about yeah. based on that. So I also like yeah. that. Yeah, it's like horror film or softcore erotic thriller from the 90s. We don't know. Um <laughs> wow yeah you're so right that really those really are the two options yeah Um, yeah Yeah, the only two options um okay so getting into the cast this is uh kind of what i found to be the most interesting so the main actor who plays alan gray um he is credited in the film as julian west but his real name was nicholas de gunsberg and um he funded the entire movie because the film was made outside of the studio system. And he was a French-born magazine editor and socialite. He was born a scion to a wealthy Russian Jewish family, and he kind of lived the life of a bon vivant in, you know, the 20s and 30s when he was young, traveling around Europe. He was famous for throwing, like, very lavish parties. And then he became an editor for very famous fashion magazines like Town & Country, Vogue, and Harper's Bazaar. And he he admitted uh, that office life had its drawbacks. I have this quote here where he said, I want to be in fashion, so I have to work with women, and that's that. <laughs> and oh he, I know. And he, then he said, but it all comes down to the weekly paycheck, isn't it? So, yeah, one, sexist. Two, were you cut off? Maybe, I guess, if you spent all your money. Um, but he was an editor for these magazines. And here's, like... He was apparently a very famous kind of, I guess, figure for up-and-coming fashion designers, like a mentor. He was a mentor for Bill Blass, Oscar de la Renta, and Calvin Klein. Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I had no idea. He was – so he was not an actor. He was – um, he was a, a, a person who, who was born into wealth and uh, built a name for himself um, working in these fashion magazines and becoming this uh, very big mentor figure, well-respected kind of figure. And he was gay and had two long-term partners. Their names were Eric Rhodes and Paul Sherman. Mm-hmm. And um, apparently Dreer scholars Jean and Dale D. Drum have observed that um, – the Baron was by no means a talented player, but Dreer directed him to move through the scenes as though he were in a dream, with very little expression on his face and with all motions slowed down and muffled. In this way, he fitted it into the mood of the film quite successfully. <laughs> that's that's so, one way to put it. <laughs> yeah, so that's kind of everything about this lead actor, which I found very interesting because... Um, yeah, I don't know. I thought there was something kind of different about him when I was watching the movie. I don't know if it was like, I mean, cause he was like, he has like a younger kind of face, um, like yes. a, like a cute sort of baby face. And I was just thinking like, hmm, this is almost a face that kind of knows what texting is. Um, <laughs> oh <my> <laughs> <laughs> I was like, it just, I don't know. It was very, it was very youthful kind of, I don't really see like, I guess a face like that for men in the early 1930s. Um, but yes, 
So most of the cast were not professional actors, aside from a few, one of which being um, Maurice Schutz as the Lord of the Manor. And so getting into the production of the film, this was Dreer's first sound film, and, and it was made outside of the studio system because plans for another film that he was going to make after The Passion of Joan of Arc had fallen through. So um, sound production was not quite there yet in France, so he went to England to study it, and um, there is, I guess, where he met uh, the Danish author Kristen Jewell, um, and he collaborated with them, and he wanted to do a supernatural story, and so he read multiple kind of mystery, spooky stories, and was looking out for recurring themes and elements in them. And he said, we can jolly well make this stuff too. So (laughs) also at the, yeah, also at the time, the 1927 play version of Dracula was very popular. Mm -hmm. And so Dreer decided to do a vampire story, which he considered, and I quote, fashionable at the time. So good to know there's, there's always been like, you know, our vampires more, marketable make a movie of it so <laughs> it's they're they're always coming in vogue um so vampire is based on two stories from in a glass darkly carmilla hello nice. the very famous um uh vampire uh story between two women that's um queer coded um i haven't read the book so i don't know how overtly it is but it is i haven't um, either but it predates the Bram Stoker's Dracula novel mm-hmm. and um, the relationship between the female vampire and the female human is um, often considered to be a lesbian one. And the other story is The Room and the Dragon Volant, which I have not read or ever heard of. So the film was independently financed by Nicholas de Gunsberg in exchange for starring. He basically <laughs> said, I'll finance the film because I always wanted to be an actor. My parents said no. So this is my chance. <laughs> um so it was filmed on location in Courtempierre, France. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And it was filmed between 1930 and 1931. So this is where we get into like how the the interesting nature of the film in relation to uh, dialogue, sound, language, all of that. Mm-hmm. So the film was filmed with in three languages. And so these languages were French, German, and English. And for the scenes with dialogue, the actors mouthed their lines in French or German or English. So their lip movements would correspond to the voices that were going to be recorded in post-production. As far as we know, there's no record of the English version being completed. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so... um, The the actors... um, Most of the actors didn't dub their own voices... And the only voices of the actors that are in their own film are of Schmitz and Gunsberg. Mm-hmm. So Dreer originally was going to film Vampire in what he described as a, quote, heavy style, but changed direction after cinematographer Matei showed him one shot that came kind of fuzzy and blurred. So this washed out look was an effect that Dreer really liked. And he had Matei shoot the film through a piece of gauze that was held three feet away from the camera to recreate this look. Yeah, which, which is, is a very, very cool technique. Um, mm-hmm. It's the kind of thing that we still do today, but just with slightly different um, technology, where mm-hmm. I think a lot of times people would think that something like a soft focus 
would be mm -hmm. done in post-production, you know, that you would do filters or whatever it is. And like, that's, you can do that. But now we also have physical filters that you screw on to the front of a lens. So they make mm -hmm. like soft focus filters. So, you know, it's yeah. just like a little, it just looks like a little pane of glass that you mm -hmm. just screw on to the very front of the lens and then you just shoot and then, you know, your effect is done in camera. Um, and generally mm -hmm. we prefer to do things in camera or, I mean, that's fading every year, that's fading away. But um, I think that trying to do as much as you can in camera, trying to do as much as you can practically um, is generally like a worthwhile pursuit for a film. And so, mm -hmm. oh, and so when I say in camera, it's kind of exactly what it sounds like. Something that, an effect that is created during production, during shooting, rather than in post-production. So it's something that happens, mm -hmm. like, while the filming is, like, while the camera is literally filming. So, mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't, so all of those things will kind of be in place once you get to the post-production and the editing. Interesting. Yeah, the only other older technique I could think of in terms of affecting the uh, the lens of the camera is like putting Vaseline over it to give um, the kind of, I guess, dreamy soft focus look mm -hmm. that you can see sometimes. But yeah, so Dreer shot and edited the film in France and then brought it to Berlin where it was post, sorry, post synchronized in both German and French. Dreer did the audio work at Universum Film AG as they had the best sound equipment available to him at the time. Um, the sounds of dogs, parrots, and other animals in the film were fake and were created by professional imitators, <laughs> which you could very much tell in the film. Um, yes, Wolfgang, Wolfgang Zeller composed the film score and worked with Dreer to develop the music. So, the film premiered in Berlin on May 6, 1932. At this premiere, the audience booed the film, which led to Dreer cutting several scenes out of the film after the first showing. The film was then distributed in France uh, by so Société Générale de Cinéma, who had also distributed Dreer's previous film, The Passion of Joan of Arc. The Paris premiere was in September 1932, which where I Vampire was is... the open... Mm. I think just to just to flag for people, I believe that the Passion of Joan of Arc is one of the most famous or critically renowned films yes. of all time. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, and so, in the Paris premiere in 1932, um, it was the opening attraction of a new cinema, and at a showing of the film in Vienna, audiences demanded their money back. When this was denied, a riot broke out that led to police having to restore order with nightsticks. This is brutal. I mean, I can't. Like, I can't like imagine. this film. I just read that and I go, for this film, really? Okay. No, it's like it. It does not feel rage riot worthy. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Like uh, wanting your money back. I understand if you like got bored, but <laughs> so. Uh, when the film premiered in Copenhagen in March 1933, Dreer did not attend. Can't blame him at this yeah. point. I mean, um, he could have—he could have been afraid for his life at that point. I, I, again, this movie, okay. Um, in the USA, the film premiered with English 
English subtitles under the title Not Against the Flesh, which, again, was our favorite. Um, yes. An English dubbed version, edited severely as to both the film continuity and the music track, appeared a few years later on the roadshow circuit as Castle of Doom. So cool. interesting second life this movie was getting. Um, yeah, so yeah. Drew, yeah, Drew soon had a nervous breakdown and went to a mental hospital in France. Poor guy. This is so, so sorry. sad. Yeah. It's very sad. And the film was a financial failure. Um, okay, let's get into fun facts. Um, oh so I'm like looking I, at his wiki page and his life sounds very sad. Um, I, I didn't do too much research into it. I, I think he, he came back, though, because he's done a lot. I thought he did a lot of um, films kind of post post this. Yeah. Oh, I mean, his his childhood sounds like it was pretty sad. Oh, yeah. yeah. He was oh. he was adopted and his adoptive parents constantly let me know that I should be grateful for the food I was given and that I strictly had no claim on anything since my mother got out of paying by lying down to die. Um, oh my God. Yeah, so this guy led a really tough life, it sounds like, um, and mm. went through some real like emotional kind of trials, um, mm. which like maybe is why part of why he was drawn to like some of the material that he was drawn to um yeah. you know like it's but anyway i just saw that and was like jesus just really like taking hits since mm -hmm. childhood <sighs> i'm so sorry carl um, yes we love you carl we, um, we love you carl you made passion of joan of arc like yeah. that's one of considered one of the greatest films of all time um Oh my goodness. So, um, fun facts. Uh, let's see. Like I said, most of the cast were not professional actors. And this is kind of the main one that I thought um, was uh, kind of adorable, I guess. Um, so, let me see here. I had it. Um, it's up under the, the casting list. But, let me see. Um, okay. So... <laughs> Uh, I'm probably going to mispronounce his name. Jan Er Onimoko? Jan Er Onimoko. Yeah. Um, he played the village doctor. And so apparently he was found late one night on a metro train in Paris. He was not a professional actor. And when approached to act in the film, he stared blankly and did not reply. <laughs> <laughs> good for this guy um so that's so that's just so adorable to me just like yes, yes. This guy just thought he was taking a train and he was offered to be in a movie um but yes he did he did accept the part um another fun fact in the original script the village doctor was intended to flee the village and get trapped in a swamp on looking for a suitable mire the crew found a mill where they saw white shadows around the windows and doors after seeing this place, they changed the film's ending to take place at this mill where the doctor dies by suffocating under the milled plaster. Okay, so there are two things that interest me about this. Um, and so when I watched it, I thought that it was flour that he was Same. being like drowned or suffocated in. 
Um, and then the, the second thing about that is that while I totally understand why they chose this location, I mentioned a few times in my notes that I think that the castle with the white plaster is a really lovely set and it makes this really interesting contrast to the manor and the wallpaper and the kind of like lavish wood mm -hmm. of the manor. I think that drowning in a swamp is way creepier than being suffocated by flour. <laughs> That's yeah, just it was, personal. Um, when it started happening, I was just kind of like, well, okay. Let's, oh, all right. <laughs> Guess we're getting suffocated by flour now. Um, and that would take so. so long for you to get crushed by flour. Just like... You know, I feel like that yeah. would take like an hour for enough flour to like fully yeah, cover his yeah. head. You know, it's the last five minutes. We got to wrap it up. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, the mire, I think, makes more sense, especially given how sig much significance is kind of placed around this pond throughout the mm -hmm. movie. Like, why not have him drown in the recurring movie? motif here um so <laughs> drowning um, the recurring motif um i have a feeling that's a phrase we're gonna use again in the future yes i hope so um so legacy so uh modern reception for vampire has been much more positive um todd crystal of all movie gave the film four and a half stars out of five saying that vampire isn't the easiest classic film to enjoy even if you are a fan of 1930s horror movies if you're patient with the slow pacing and ambiguous storyline of Vampire, you'll find that this film offers many striking images, and that although the film is not exciting in terms of pacing, it's a good choice if you want to see a film that establishes a compelling mood. Um, Jay Hopperman of The Village Voice wrote that Vampire is Dreer's most radical film, maybe one of my dozen favorite movies by any director. Um, Anton Biddle of Channel 4 said, that um, in comparison to the silent film Nosferatu stating that it is a lesser known but in many ways superior film and that it is a triumph of the irrational. Dreer's eerie memento mori never allows either protagonist or viewer fully to wake up from its surreal nightmare. And in the early 2010s, the London edition of Time Out conducted a poll with several authors, directors, actors, and critics who have worked within the horror genre to vote for their top horror films. And Vampire placed at number 50 on their top 100 list. Nice. I think that the um, the comparison to Nosferatu is interesting because um, mm -hmm. just rewinding a bit to some of the production information and Nicholas credited as Julian West, um, it actually reminds me a bit of the production of Nosferatu because the mm -hmm. company that made Nosferatu Prana Films was... Mm -hmm found was like a passion project of a very wealthy occultist who also had kind of like an alter ego slash second name kind of stage name yeah yeah so, that's a good point i didn't think of that yeah so it kind of reminds me of, of that in a way i think that saying that this is better than nosferatu is a mm -hmm. really really interesting claim i would be like i would be interested like do you agree with that um, in the case of Nosferatu and Vampire, I think they're two very different films going for mm -hmm. very different things. Um, aesthetically, I could see some similarities, but that could just be part of the general, more so silent uh, techniques or aesthetics of silent film mm -hmm. or horror film. 
Um, I I find Nosferatu to be a lot more interesting of a film. Uh, Vampire, I appreciate for I appreciate it like technically and aesthetically, mm-hmm. and definitely I think the thing I took away the most from it was the atmosphere mm-hmm. it created. I remember reading in my research that some critics kind of compare it more so to the surrealist films of like early Jean Cocteau or Louis Benuel's Chien Andalou, which I, mm-hmm. I would definitely agree with. Um, I, I think it's, it's much more of a, um, a, a surrealist silent film than it is a um, horror film. Mm-hmm. It's um, more vibes driven. <laughs> Yeah, it's very much a vibes-driven movie to the point where I was getting a little confused at points, and I was like, uh, "What?" But um, <laughs> that's kind of the point. That. I agree that I think narratively, stylistically, uh, this might be superior to Nosferatu. I think that that there's an ambition to this that is not the same as in Nosferatu. But at the same time, I think calling this film like technically superior is interesting because Nosferatu came out, I think, almost a decade, either a decade or nine years prior to this. And so as much as it sucks to say, like there is an aspect of they did it first to Nosferatu um, because a lot of the techniques in Nosferatu, like the silhouettes, um, and some of the other, and some very, very early examples of stop motion, a lot of these techniques were, like, incredibly new at the time. So in some ways, the technical complexity of Vampire is owing to, like, the pioneering work that Nosferatu did. Um, and so I think that in in that way, it's kind of di- it's kind of difficult for me to fully agree that this film is better than Nosferatu, but I do agree that there are aspects of this film that are more impressive um, or more complex than Nosferatu. Okay, Elliot, should we get into the plot of Vampire? Such that the plot is yes. Let's dive right in. <laughs> All right. So first, just going off, I don't know if you thought of this, but I thought the opening credits were very cool. Kind of an interesting contrast to the opening credits for the Bale Lugosi Dracula, where we have like the very big cartoon cutout bat. Here we have these really kind of funky credits, which made me, mm-hmm. uh, reminded me of German expressionism a bit with the, uh, the font. And mm-hmm. then we have... Uh, the opening kind of little preamble talking about how our main character, Alan Gray, is a young man who's a vampire enthusiast and his mm-hmm. reality between the supernatural and the real is becoming blurred, which, mm-hmm. damn, they didn't have to call me out like that, but <laughs> it's like, can we not be vampire enthusiasts who have our reality blurred? Um, but... <laughs> They also emphasize that he is a wanderer or a sort of like mm. um, like a traveler who doesn't really have a stable home or hometown. Yes, yes. And um, so he's kind of going to be sort of the audience surrogate. Um, but also I just have to say I love that when we first see him, he has like a really big butterfly net. 
Oh yeah, I remember being yeah, like, it was, interesting. Then <laughs> we never see like that again. Catching bats, vampires. Yeah. yeah, no, he like um. So yeah, he's just like this young, well-dressed man who arrives at an inn close to the village of Cortempier, and he rents a room at this inn to sleep. And so uh, while he is asleep, he is awakened suddenly by an old man who enters the room and leaves a square packet on Gray's table. He labels it to be opened upon my death on the wrapping. Totally normal so, for the innkeeper to do. Every time I go yeah, to a hotel, a, 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 I hope they leave me something <laughs> to be opened yeah. only upon the death. We we um we we have a, a be- the beginning of a trend here with characters who we have no idea who they are just coming in to the film. <laughs> and <laughs> yes. Yeah, so that was the first one I was going, wait, hold on here. Um, And let's see. So uh, Gray takes the package and walks outside where shadows guide him to an old castle where he sees the shadows dancing and wandering on their own. And I thought this technique was pretty neat with the shadows and also Mm -hmm. the fact that I found the camera movement to be very uh, fluid and technically impressive here. There's a lot of like yeah. kind of tracking shots, like even a whip pan. I think we got a whip pan one time. Um, yeah, I don't know if you, right. yeah. yeah, if you noticed that, but compared to something like Dracula, both versions, which were for the most part, pretty stagey. Um, this was yes. a, an interesting yeah. change of pace. It had really, I agree that there was like a lot of, really good movement and I also noticed the shadows and um shadows and silhouettes play a big role in like the mise-en-scene of the film and I also thought those were like very effectively and impressively done yeah it's very Nosferatu kind of um yeah kind of bringing us back to that silent expressionist aesthetic Gray also sees an elderly woman later identified as Marguerite Chopin and encounters another old man, later identified as the village doctor. Again, there, <laughs> there's just a lot of characters coming into this movie with, you know, just no, no sense of who they are or what they do. But Gray leaves the castle and walks to a manor, and looking through one of the windows, Gray sees the lord of the manor, the same man who gave him the package earlier. And then a shadow appears and the man is suddenly murdered by gunshot so gray is led into the house by the servants who rush to the aid of the fallen man but it is too late to save him so i actually thought this scene was was kind of touching with um the giselle the younger daughter coming to the the father's side and um he he gives her like a little heart-shaped locket i think and we're getting I think we're getting a bit of the uh, the drear, very dramatic close-ups of actors that you get a lot of in The Passion of Joan of Arc. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think here, here death is treated a lot more, I guess, seriously and somberly um, than maybe in uh, any of the previous vampire films we've watched thus far. We do get a sense um, of people's so. grief maybe a little bit more. Um, yeah yeah i mean yeah. all these close-ups the actors usually have like tears in their eyes or a tear coming down i would say mm-hmm. um i did find the murder a little as emotional as people were i found it a little silly that 
someone came out of literally nowhere and shot him with a shotgun for seemingly no reason. Yeah. It, I did find it. Yeah. Annoying, yeah. Yeah. Again, this movie isn't too concerned with logic. Um, so uh, the servants. Um, so, yeah. Gray is led into the house by the servants and he rushes to the aid of the fallen man. Too late to save him. He dies. And so the servants ask Gray to stay the night, you know, because why not? Um, And Giselle, the younger daughter of the Lord, takes Gray to the library and tells him that her sister, Leon, is gravely ill. Mm -hmm. And just then they see Leon walking outside. They follow her and find her unconscious on the ground with fresh bite wounds, which... Um, yeah, we, I think we see the bite wounds, um, I want to say. Do we? I can't I remember do, for maybe. sure. I remember them being described. I don't know if I remember seeing them. Okay. I might be getting it completed with the, um, George Milford Dracula, but, um, mm-hmm. I thought the, the positioning of her outside on the log was very artistic, mm-hmm. artistically framed. Again, we have to have our... Our, our female victims with their hair strewn out and everything and in their nightgowns. Um, yes. So they carry her. <laughs> so they carry her inside and Gray remembers the parcel and opens it. Um, inside. Oh my God, this book. Yes. Okay. I, I, uh, okay. So inside we have a book about the horrific demons called vampires who f- can force humans into submission. And mm-hmm. by reading the book, Gray realizes that Leon is a victim of a vampire, or as I will just say for the rest of this podcast, vampire. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, what were your thoughts on this book? Because I just got progressively more and more annoyed every time they cut to a page with information about the vampire. Because, so... like, why watch a movie when you can just read about them? <laughs> This, that's such an interesting perspective on it. I think this is a great thing to talk about for a few reasons. One is that mm-hmm. this is the most, I think, the, the of the three films that we've watched so far, this is the most concerned with developing lore. Like, we get a lot of lore about vampires. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing that's perhaps a more positive reading is that this does feel very much like in the tradition of it's so interesting how things change so much but also never really change because it's such a hallmark of the horror genre that there's a monster and that people are like well we have to figure out how to kill the monster so they go on this research journey and they like find Mm -hmm. ancient texts or like you know, hunt down an expert or something. And then they use that knowledge to like vanquish the monster. And so like, that is something that from day one, we see, Mm -hmm. you know, all the way from Nosferatu to like, I'm trying to think of a, of a horror movie that came out recently. Um, But I don't know, like it, like they go and they find the, they go and they look at the microfiche. You go to the stacks in the library, you go through old newspapers, like the ring as well. Like you're going through archives. So Mm -hmm. I think that there's something, um, there's something sweet in the fact that we can see the origin of some of these tropes and of some of these like plot elements that we see over and over again. But I do agree that it creates a really, really weird contrast where we have the action of the film 
which is so ambiguous and dreamy and like you're saying like not really driven by logic or compelled to be logical and then to contrast that with these like really long passages from this book mm-hmm. um it does feel like there's a friction there that i that i think is you know does feel a little bit odd yeah um the other thing that does interest me about it is that there is all this lore but that it differs from our kind of contemporary understanding or idea of vampires because this says this says that they are terrible demons called vampires these are the bodies and souls of the dead whose terrible deeds in life deny them repose in the grave which is really different than the way we imagine vampires now yeah i think i wrote in my notes lots of mixed lore in this book Mm -hmm. um because it would say things like they come out on a full moon Mm -hmm. um just just kind of um you know conflating with different supernatural creatures that are reminiscent of things like zombies or werewolves Mm -hmm. and because initially that was more the case where vampires and especially zombies were kind of the 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 line between the two was a bit Mm -hmm. more blurred um and like yes the book does contribute to the time honored filmic tradition of you know providing Um, characters and by extension the audience with information about the supernatural monster creature that they are fighting Mm -hmm. and it was interesting reading some of the lore and um, how it was I I think more accurate to I want to say at least Eastern European uh, traditions or um, the mythology of vampires in that Mm -hmm. regard Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, it was just um, it, it certainly it doesn't help a, a, an already very slow movie when whatever action is occurring is interrupted by continual cuts to these pages. That lasts um, so long. That um, lasts so long. <laughs> like really I was like, there. I could read. I've read it twice. Like yeah, um, yeah. So we. We have the book, and then the village doctor visits Leon at the manor, and Gray recognizes him as the old man he saw in the castle. So, a lot of Gray just recognizing people in this movie. Um, yeah, he's like, oh, you were that creepy man who walked through yeah, the room I was standing uh, in. It's like, why not just have this be the first time he's introduced? Okay. Um, so... The doctor tells Gray that a blood transfusion is needed, and Gray agrees to donate his blood to save Leon. We're just going to assume they have the same blood type. Um. Well, I also think that this moment is really interesting because Mm -hmm. it is the first time that we see blood willingly given. You know, Mina slash Nina, they both sacrificed themselves for Mm -hmm. the greater good of their towns or cities, Um, you know, in Nosferatu and in Lugosi's Dracula. But this is the first time that we've seen someone completely of their own volition give their blood to a vampire, which I found um, interesting. Yes, and in this um, very, and in this medical kind of way, I remember there's a close-up of like the needle and the um, uh, the uh, tourniquet kind of, and mm-hmm. things like that, which was interesting. Mm-hmm. 
So exhausted from blood loss, Gray falls asleep. And meanwhile, the oldest of the servants of the manor is reading the book and learns that a vampire can be defeated by driving an iron bar through its heart. So I want to say that's accurate to traditional mythology, which mm-hmm. is either stake or decapitation or both. It's it's one of those options. Um, yeah, the whole burning in the sunlight. I don't. I think that's a later edition. Um, yeah, I don't think it gets mentioned. But I think the interesting thing about the stake is that. What is it that an iron stake was driven through her heart, nailing her horrid yeah. soul to the earth, which I thought was yeah. an interesting detail. Right. Because in my head, whenever vampire staked, I always assumed, oh, okay, it's like for to go through the heart. But here it's mm-hmm. more of a, a sense of kind of keeping them in place. It's meant yeah. to do that. So they can't yes. get up and <laughs> about. So... Gray wakes up and, sensing danger, rushes to Leon's bedside, where he surprises the doctor as he attempt as he is attempting to poison the girl. Which, I remember in my notes, I wrote hilarious. You always want to make sure you have your vials labeled with a huge skull and crossbones yes. on it. The doctor shows up with like with that, you know. Yes. Here, take yeah. it. It's it promise it'll make you feel better. Um, and also I thought it was pretty cool when he has kind of this premonition and you see the skull and the skeleton holding the hand. I was like, woo, let's get yeah. creepy. Yeah. I liked that too. Um, yeah. For a second I was like, oh my gosh, is that the vampire sick? But no, it wasn't. Um, so the doctor flees and Gray finds that Giselle, the younger sister, is gone. So Gray follows the doctor back to the castle. But before reaching it, he has, as per the summary here, an out of body experience and sees himself being dead and buried by marguerite chopin and the doctor which boy was that not conveyed the first time i was watching it i thought it was a twist and he was dead i also absolutely thought he was dead they put him in a coffin and bury him (laughs) yeah because well suddenly it's just like the character's walking around and suddenly he's like see-through in that old old timey projection-y way and it's just Mm -hmm. like wait what is happening mm-hmm. and he um, gets up from his body like there's there's a moment where there's yeah. two of him on screen like a more corporeal version and then a see-through version right and i was plot wise i was quite lost but i think this is considered to be the most famous um sequence from the film and i can see why it's very Kind of creepy haunting imagery and i really liked the uh kind of point of view camera shots from inside the coffin looking up at the sky and the cathedral while the coffin's being carried i thought that was really good yeah absolutely i think the framing through the that pov shot framed through the window in the coffin there were mm-hmm. a few shots throughout the film where there's like the frame within a frame like when mm-hmm. he's looking through that really like skinny rectangular window or when they're yeah. carrying the old man's body through the doorway into the study, there's like mm-hmm. other doorways in the background. So there were a lot of moments of, of this like kind of layered framing that I thought were really beautiful and effective. Yeah, layered framing and also an interesting kind of use of levels, I think. You get a lot of high angle and low angle shots of like staircases and people talking up to people or down to people and things like that um so gray returns to his own body and sees the old servant heading to marguerite chopin's grave 
They open the grave and find the old woman perfectly preserved. And then they hammer a large metal bar through her heart, killing her. Which I believe in some screenings that had to be censored a little bit. Or at the very least, the version we're watching is a censored version of that, maybe. Is this our first film that uses the phrase true death? Because in the book Um, it says that the stake will cause like the true death. Um... Which I think I just might be picking up on because of how often they say that in True Blood. (laughs) (laughs) A true, true death. Um, (laughs) That was an amazing (laughs) bill. Thank you. I'm quite, I'm quite proud of my bill. (laughs) Our listeners can be thoroughly annoyed by it for two hours when we review True Blood. Um, So, uh, what was I going to say? Yes, possibly. I'm trying to think. Um. Yeah, because in Nosferatu, it's sunlight. In both Draculas, it's the stake mm-hmm. um, off screen. Here is our first kind of on screen staking, I would say. Um, nice. But yeah, so the curse of the Vampia is lifted, and Leon suddenly recovers um, in a very beautiful and ethereal way. She mm-hmm. says, I, f- I feel so strong. Um, so the ghost of the Lord of the Manor appears to the doctor, chasing him away from his house and killing the soldier who was helping him. Gray rescues Giselle, who had been, I guess, kidnapped by the doctor and was tied up. Um, remember the first time watching it, I was like, oh, damn, is she dead? Um, but <laughs> she was so still. She was just she so was still. She was very still. Yeah, it was kind of like, that's that's pretty that's dark for 32. Um, so the doctor hides in an old mill but finds himself locked in a chamber where flower sacks are filled. Okay, Elliot, you were right. Aha! (laughs) It was flower. Oh my gosh. Um, So the old servant arrives and activates the mill's machinery, filling the chamber with flour and suffocating the doctor. Giselle and Gray cross eight. Very slowly. Yeah, very slowly. Very slowly. Um, It looked very realistic too, so Mm -hmm. props to that actor. Um, Or... Giselle and Gray cross a foggy river by boat and find themselves in a bright clearing and the potential breeding pair can now go forth unfettered. The end. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, okay. See, because th- that is interesting because one of the things that I wanted to talk about is the ending. And so this is a very mm-hmm. like a lot of the plot elements of this film are really unclear. A lot of things go unexplained. Um mm-hmm a lot of things are just kind of strange and don't really seem to connect to other events in the film. And so I wonder if there is a reading of this film that they both died and that that brightly lit clearing that they go to (gasps) is the afterlife because they get in this boat and there's an old man in the boat. Like the river sticks. Exactly. Like takes them across Uh. this foggy river They're like in this mist where they can't see. And then they have Mm -hmm. to traverse a dark wood to get to this brightened clearing. I would argue that you could very easily read the film's ending as that the breeding pair does not make it. (laughs) They they don't survive. (laughs) That's kind of, that's romantic in its way. Um, So yeah, that's a really interesting theory. I like that a lot. Um, Yeah. uh, Okay. So that was... Carl Theodore Dreer's Vampire. Elliot, what do we think? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
yeah, I will, I will, I won't lie. This film is a little bit difficult to follow. There were times where I did have to go to the wiki page just to be like, Mm -hmm. did I, like, what just happened? Who is that man? (laughs) But I think. (laughs) Who are many men in this movie? Yeah, I think for me, the big draw of this film is the surrealism. But for me, the big draw of this film is the fact that it is not a Dracula adaptation. And so it introduces new elements to the themes around vampires and vampirism. And it kind of explores new territory. Um, Like one thing that I found really interesting was that this is our first example of a vampire that feels that feels conflicted about their need to survive off of blood because one of mm-hmm. the quotes in the book is for the lust of the vampire is transmitted like a plague to its victim who in turn finds itself torn between the thirst it feels for blood and a desperate repulsion towards this very craving this is the mm-hmm. first time that we've had a vampire that feels any guilt or like identifies with the humanity of their victims in any significant way. And so I thought yeah. that that was um, honestly like a, a pretty big innovation considering how different that is from mm-hmm. the films that we've watched up to this point where there's like no guilt, no remorse really at all. Yeah, they're just they're just kind of one-dimensional monsters. I would agree that is a, a pretty big development as explicitly stated by the text of this book. Is that conveyed necessarily with the character it's uh, herself? No. Um didn't yeah. really <laughs> necessarily see any conflict there, but you know, if the book says, then sure. Um, but also, it's our first on-screen main vampire that's a woman. Yes. Yes. Girls can do it too. <laughs> yes. You know what? We had we had Dracula's silent three wives and yeah. Ava almost turning and Lucy briefly turning, but it's like, no, here, this woman is the big bad. This female yes. vampire here. Um, what would it be? Which... Girl boss, blood drink, soul. Girl boss. Soul capture. Girl boss slay. Girl boss yes. slay. Yes. <laughs> Girl boss, um, yeah, which is great, and I guess I can kind of see where they were getting their insp- inspiration from Carmilla, where it's a mm-hmm. female vampire preying on a a human female. Um, uh-huh. But sadly, they make no, them no. sisters. Sally, no. Well, oh, you mean sister- Marguerite? Yeah, you mean Marguerite? Yeah, Marguerite. Yes. Leon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sadly, no homoeroticism, but you know, <laughs> we'll get there. There was a little bit of bondage. Uh, <laughs> um, we, we get a little bit of, you know, because she's like all tied up, you know, at one point. Uh, the oh, older that's sister. true. Yeah. In a very uncomfortable position. Like, that's why I was thinking like, oh, she's very still and the way her hands are tied. I'm like, she did. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I'm kind of, I think I wrote in my notes that a lot of the film in terms of atmosphere, and I think especially at the end where we see kind of the superimposition of the dead patriarch's head scaring mm-hmm. the doctor, a lot of this film kind of felt more like a ghost story than mm-hmm. a vampire story. I'm kind of curious what you think about that. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting thing to raise because now that I think about it, a lot of the 
kind of weird visions that he has do have to do with ghosts who appear in the form of shadows. And you Mm -hmm. learn that, like, one of the things that vampires can do in this world is that they are able to, like, essentially enslave the ghosts of people who, you know, died sinners. And not only Mm -hmm. that, but one of their main goals is to drive their living victims to suicide so that they have Mm -hmm. even more souls to command because... The, the idea that you couldn't go to heaven if you committed suicide was very, very much alive and well. Yes, absolutely. And that was an interesting uh, addition in the book about the, the, the fact that the vampire wouldn't even do, I guess, do the dirty work themselves or, or kill their victims, yeah, but they would drive their victims to suicide. Maybe they just had that. So the scene where she's trying to drink the poison and gray stops her and re- or mm-hmm. realizes the doctor's trying to poison her would make sense so maybe it was just like uh the needs of the plot so yeah vampires try to uh make their victims uh suicidal which i mm-hmm. but yeah a lot of interesting lore mm-hmm. added in the book and there's a lot more of a um religious um, subtext or religious theme going through mm. this uh, lore that I didn't really find to be in Dracula, the true Dracula adaptations necessarily. Um, I think that's just because both of those films are more focused on the kind of technological tension mm-hmm. with, um, I guess I, you would call it primitivism or um, pre, pr- like pre-modern, pre-industrial kind of era. Uh-huh. Um lore so but yeah not as not as much religious stuff even though the iconography is definitely there like with Mm -hmm. the crucifix but that's about it yeah i felt like the crucifix almost was more there to provide like a visual contrast to all the scythe imagery um oh i meant in the dracula oh in dracula yes we do (laughs) we do see the crucifix yeah Yeah. um yeah 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 Another thing that I find kind of interesting about this and like all of the weirdness around the lore and like the rules is it almost reminds me of House of the Devil because in House of the Devil, we have the guy who turns, who's a, can turn into a bat and he's able to like summon all of these ghosts and ghouls and demons and skeletons and stuff. Um, And so that kind of makes me think. Yeah. Yeah. House of the Devil. Well, one of the titles for the film was Castle of Doom. So, was it was it really? You mean yeah? You mean House of the Devil was also titled Castle of Doom, or you mean Vampire? No, no. Was the, also the, yes. one of the titles for this is Castle of Doom. So, which they yeah. used in the circus tours, right? Um, you are correct. They did use the title Castle of Doom in the traveling roadshow circuit. <laughs> which so there, you can already see. Yeah, they're trying to, like, I I find it interesting when American um, distribution practices included, like, taking films that are a lot artsier or longer and, like, but if if they're horror, they have horror elements, they're trying to cut them into, like, something much more exciting or, Mm. like, superficially kind of just, like, scary and titillating kind of. And, um, yeah, I, I always think that's interesting. It is, especially because it's another, it's kind of one of the places where we see real differences between 
cinema culture then versus now because like this idea of releasing a film under multiple titles releasing significantly different cuts in different countries um was like very much the norm and now we really really don't feel that way anymore like the cut is the cut like we have this devotion and there's this sanctity built around like the final version of the film and you know like you look at films like Blade Runner like there's so much contention over like the theatrical release versus the extended edition versus the director's cut um mm -hmm. yeah did uh did we have any thoughts on the acting overall I mean <laughs> the, the lead guy understandably is a bit of a cipher um he really I don't think he has like any major emotion throughout the film even when he's being buried With, alive yeah. he's like well unexpected but okay <laughs> a surprise to be sure but a welcome one um yeah just <laughs> i think the Love daughters were, i think the daughters were the best actresses yes. um also i can see why they uh picked the um the train guy to be the doctor because he has a distinct look. I kept thinking, mm -hmm. was like, oh, who's this Albert Einstein looking guy here? And yeah, he had that's, a, that's a good description of him. Yeah, um, and like, I mean, I thought he worked really well in the part. Granted, I wouldn't say any of the <clears throat> the role, like any of the characters, really have any depth here. Yeah, they're more just I think they're... experiencing. We're just watching them experience the creepy things that Jair, you know, wanted yeah. them to kind of go through. Yeah, and I think the the central character, Alan, is very much meant to be an audience surrogate. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it, it's very much, a, like you said earlier, a vibes piece. <laughs> a vibes only piece. Vibes um, only. Very thin on story. Yeah. What were some of what was your favorite moment? I feel like we should do. I feel like we picked a kind yeah. of favorite moment from the last several. So, oh yeah, favorite moment is definitely where he is being buried alive, mm -hmm. and you get the point of view shots from inside the coffin. Thought that was great, technically, atmospherically. Really liked it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think my favorite moment was when we see the two sisters together. And this mm. is on the cover or like on the poster for the film. But um, Leon is like kind of looking at the ceiling almost or has this kind of really like deranged grin on her face. And she's kind of like mm. looking around and um, and then eventually her gaze lands on her sister. And there's this moment where you think that she might like attack her or try to drink her blood. And so that was the first time where I actually felt a bit of like fear or, you know, uh, like in, it, it was the first time that the horror of the piece kind of hit me, or maybe even the only time that the horror of the piece kind of hit me because like, yes, this is a horror film. Absolutely. But I didn't find it particularly frightening. Um, but that mm -hmm. moment, there was like a little bit of like a, a little spike of fear where I was yeah. like, Ooh, what's she going to do? <laughs> yeah. But another thing that I 
another thing that thematically that stuck out to me about the film was that I did feel like there was this undercurrent of ableism or this undercurrent of because a, several of yeah. the figures that he encounters that disturb him are people with um, physical disabilities or like physical mm. kind of mobility impairments. Like we have, I think he's car- I think he's credited as the limping soldier, but one of the recurring yeah. figures in the film is a soldier with a um, prosthetic wooden leg. And he is one of the few things that that our 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 protagonist has like a kind of bigger reaction to. And then the I think the first figure, the first character or person that he sees that kind of makes him think that there are people that he can't trust is a man who kind of stumbles out onto the stair landing who appears to be blind. Um, mm. And so I thought yeah. that that was kind of part of this other kind of thing where like youth played an interesting role in the film. And it yes, almost I, is like vampirism mm. is like the enemy of youth or like vice versa, where youth is kind of the enemy of the vampire in an interesting way. So I'm curious what you thought about like the role that youth and youthfulness and vitality yeah. played in the film. I'm glad you brought that up because I definitely agree with your view on the ableism. And I was also going to say I felt like it was a bit ageist as well Mm -hmm. because all of these characters that, at least initially in the beginning, he comes across and he kind of goes, whoa, are like old, very old. Just old Like men. Yeah, like they're old men. It it reminded me of this YouTuber I like, Kyle Calgren, and he has a video where he, he was talking about a horror film and he's like, okay, look, can we just stop, like, presenting elderly people as, like, scary? He's like, yeah. don't we all want to live to this age? This is the win state. <laughs> and <laughs> Yeah, it's like, it follows, I think, is a film that no- mm, does that yeah. pretty noticeably. Because, Myths are um, hereditary. Yeah, hereditary, definitely. But in it follows several of the forms that the thing that follows takes are just old women. Like that's and that's yeah. and it's like okay I don't find an old woman to be inherently horrific. Yeah, like that's that's so commonly used as like not even just like an old woman, but like a nude old woman is considered just oh the horror, which so much intersections of ageism and sexism there. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I think there was definitely an ageist element along with the ableism element in the film, and very much how like the three kind of main characters that you want to see make it through and be okay are a young man and two young women Mm -hmm. who are sisters so I definitely agree with your opinion on that yeah and I think the idea and and like the main vampire too Marguerite she's Mm -hmm. an elderly woman yeah (laughs) yes the idea that youth poses a threat to a vampire is interesting Mm -hmm. Um, which is so different to now where vampirism is you want to be young and immortal and hot forever like that's that's how you like vampirism is the way to youth now yes yeah it's it's a total reversal you're completely right yeah which is interesting yeah Um, because it's like in in so many contemporary vampire things like 
basically any time that there's a relationship between a human and a vampire, the major conflict of that relationship is that the human is like, turn me into a vampire so we can stay young and hot and in love forever. Mm-hmm. And then the vampire is always like, staying young and hot forever is like not what you think it is. Frankly, I'm right. jealous that you can grow old and die. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a big push in a lot of those narratives to be like, no, aging's great and being a human's great, and it's um, it's like yeah, eh, eh, it depends, <laughs> maybe. Um, uh, but yeah, it's it's a total reversal now. Yeah. All right. Did we have any further thoughts on vampire? I'm trying to think if there was anything else that I thought was like significant or things that really stood out to me. Um, I mean, I guess just that this is, I think our third film that almost didn't make it, that was almost just completely lost yeah. to time. Yes. Cause the restoration, I believe that's available now, or at least the one criterion has is mm-hmm. kind of a suturing of the French German, the two, the French and German yes. versions. Yeah. Um, so it's a it's a bit of a Frankenstein movie. Yeah, and so as we talked about last episode with George Melford's Dracula, like that was almost lost to time as well. Mm-hmm. And Nosferatu, Nosferatu, yeah, really just survived by a stroke of luck because that mm-hmm. film was meant to be completely eradicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that this is um, another film where. I, you know, we just want to acknowledge that we're really lucky to have this still considering that we just almost lost it entirely. Especially considering how much grief it kind of put poor Carl through. Yeah, yeah. yeah, That it has had a legacy. Yeah, It has a legacy and it's been critically reappraised, much like the Spanish language Dracula. And these films are finally getting their dues. Yes. Good. Yeah, it is. It's always sad when something like that happens, you know, similar to Van Gogh, where, you know, he killed himself and like died, I think, having never really sold a painting and just thinking that he was a failed artist. And, you know, (laughs) much like that episode of Doctor Who, it is hard (laughs) not to wonder sometimes or not to wish sometimes that you could go back and find those people and just be like beyond your lifetime your work survives Mm -hmm. and is loved and appreciated if not like some of the most deeply famous paintings or whatever it is Mm -hmm. you know of all time so you know you Mm -hmm. do kind of wish that you could like go to that mental institution that psychiatric facility and be like carl like it's okay it's gonna be okay yeah Yeah. people people come to respect and understand what you were trying to do with this film yeah yeah definitely well hopefully that's what we can contribute to a little bit here with this podcast helping to promote that longevity (laughs) yeah we're carrying the torch (laughs) or perhaps the stake are we carrying Uh the stake but then we'd be killing the films yeah, I mean, torches, that could also work if you want, like, an angry mob chasing the vampire. <laughs> we uh, are the angry mob <laughs> no. chasing the vampire film through history. Oh, I, no, we are. 
Oh my gosh, we are carrying the blood bag forward there. Yeah. Are we the fangbangers <laughs> of of the podcasting yeah. <laughs> world? <laughs> oh, 100%. <laughs> yes. All right, so since we've kind of addressed all of our thoughts and everything we wanted to talk about with uh, Dreyer's Vampire. Uh, that concludes our fourth episode. And so we decided that we um, kind of want to open the show up to some other films just so we can, um, you know, maybe expand on the larger context of the film scene at the time or kind of show more of our own interests as hosts. So we are going to start having a special episode, a host pick um, every fifth episode. So next week, we are not doing a vampire film. Uh, Tara is picking our first special episode. And would you like to share what it's going to be? Yes. So for our first special episode, I would love to do Julia Ducournau's 2021 film, Titan. Um, nice, nice. Yes, that is the one where she fucks the car. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. We are drunk. We are jumping yes. almost a hundred years into the future when car yes. fucking is allowed. Yeah, l- l- let's show this film to the audiences that rioted and wanted their money back for Vampire. I'm sure they would love it and receive it. Um, <laughs> but yes, I I watched this film recently. And I loved it. I love Julia DeCournau's de- debut, Future Raw. And I think uh, she's just only getting better and better. And I'm excited to see what she does next. But this film was great. And also, Julia DeCournau is technically only the second female director to have um, her film win the Palme d'Or. Mm-hmm. And she's the first one technically to win it solo because Jane Campion um, tied with another director when she won for the piano in, I want to say, 19... 19- 92 or 93 so Mm -hmm. yeah there's um this film is unprecedented in some ways certainly in content i would say um but (laughs) i i think it's i think it's a movie you're really gonna love elliot i'm very excited because i loved raw so and i've heard a lot about this film from other people whose you know film opinions i respect and value so I'm very excited to see it. And I'm really curious to see how we're able to connect it to the <laughs> films that were kind of on the main timeline, you know, because I'm sure that there will be interesting synergies and things to talk about there. So, yeah, and it, it, it'll just be great to, you know, for each of us to kind of share some of the things that have drawn us to cinema and some of the things that have... Um, made us into the cinephiles that are going to sit through every vampire film that can be found under the sun or under the moon oh my god (laughs) we need to see if the films hold up to the sun's rays yes yeah um wells famously sensitive to light wow have we just unlocked have we just unlocked is cinema and film itself the, the modern vampire oh my god elliot you're bringing up just like <laughs> genius level <laughs> connections here uh god this is tier. why yeah. this is why the work we do is so so significant yes we are incredibly significant <laughs> um, 
but legitimately i think that's something to talk about going forward um oh yeah definitely yeah all right well thank you guys for listening to another episode of this podcast sucks find us where you get your podcasts on spotify apple music and youtube follow us on social media and give us a like you can find us at that vampire pod on x formerly known as twitter and instagram (laughs) We'd love to hear from you guys, and remember, stay bloodthirsty. Catch our next episode on Julia de Curnow's Titan.